Chapter Two of Out of Time's Abyss. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lucy Lafaro. Out of Time's Abyss, by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Two. When Bradley went on guard at midnight, September fourteenth. His thoughts were largely occupied with rejoicing that the night was almost spent without serious mishap, and that the morrow would doubtless see them all safely returned to Fort Dinosaur. The hopefulness of his mood was tinged with sorrow by recollection of the two members of his party who lay back there in the savage wilderness, and for whom there would never again be a homecoming. No premonition of impending ill cast gloom over his anticipations, for the coming day. For Bradley was a man who, while taking every precaution against possible danger, permitted no gloomy forebodings to weigh down his spirit. When danger threatened, he was prepared, but he was not forever courting disaster. And so it was that when about one o'clock in the morning of the fifteenth he heard the dismal flapping of giant wings overhead, he was neither surprised nor frightened but idly prepared for an attack he had known might reasonably be expected. The sound seemed to come from the south, and presently, low above the trees in that direction, the man made out a dim shadowy form circling slowly about. Bradley was a brave man, yet so keen was the feeling of revulsion engendered by the sight and sound of that grim uncanny shape that he distinctly felt the goose-flesh rise over the surface of his body, and it was with difficulty that he refrained from following an instinctive urge to fire upon the nocturnal intruder. Better, far better would it have been, had he given in to the insistent demand of his subconscious mentor. But his almost fanatical obsession to save ammunition proved now his undoing, for while his attention was riveted upon the thing circling before him, and while his ears were filled with the beating of its wings, there swooped silently out of the black night behind him another weird and ghostly shape. With its huge wings partly closed for the dive, and its white robe fluttering in its wake, the apparition swooped down upon the Englishman. So great was the force of the impact when the thing struck Bradley between the shoulders, that the man was half stunned. His rifle flew from his grasp. He felt talons of great strength seize him beneath his arms and sweep him off his feet. And then the thing rose swiftly with him, so swiftly that his cap was blown from his head by the rush of air, as he was borne rapidly upward into the inky sky and the cry of warning to his companions was forced back into his lungs. The creature wheeled immediately toward the east, and was at once joined by its fellow, who circled them once, and then fell in behind them. Bradley now realized the strategy that the pair had used to capture him, and at once concluded that he was in the power of reasoning beings closely related to the human race, if not actually of it. Past experience suggested that the great wings were a part of some ingenious mechanical device, 
for the limitations of the human mind, which is always loath to accept aught beyond its own little experience, would not permit him to entertain the idea that the creatures might be naturally winged, and at the same time of human origin. From his position, Bradley could not see the wings of his captor, nor, in the darkness, had he been able to examine those of the second creature closely, when it circled before him. He listened for the puff of a motor, or some other tell-tale sound that would prove the correctness of his theory. However, he was rewarded with nothing more than the constant flap-flap. Presently, far below and ahead, he saw the waters of the inland sea, and a moment later he was borne over them. Then his captor did that which proved beyond doubt to Bradley that he was in the hands of human beings, who had devised an almost perfect scheme of duplicating mechanically the wings of a bird. The thing spoke to its companion, and in a language that Bradley partially understood, since he recognised words that he had learned from the savage races of Caspac. From this he judged that they were human, and being human, he knew that they could have no natural wings, for who had ever seen a human being so adorned? Therefore, their wings must be mechanical. Thus Bradley reasoned, thus most of us reason, not by what might be possible, but by what has fallen within the range of our experience. What he heard them say was to the effect that having covered half the distance, the burden would now be transferred from one to the other. Bradley wondered how the exchange was to be accomplished. He knew that those giant wings would not permit the creatures to approach one another closely enough to effect a transfer in this manner. But he was soon to discover that they had other means of doing it. He felt the thing that carried him rise to a greater altitude, and below he glimpsed momentarily the second white-robed figure. Then the creature above sounded a low call. It was answered from below, and instantly Bradley felt the clutching talons release him. Gasping for breath, he hurtled downward through space. For a terrifying instant, pregnant with horror, Bradley fell. Then something swooped for him from behind. Another pair of talons clutched him beneath the arms. His downward rush was checked. Within another hundred feet, and close to the surface of the sea, he was again borne upward. As a hawk dives for a songbird on the wing, so this great human bird dived for Bradley. It was a harrowing experience, but soon over, and once again the captive was being carried swiftly toward the east, and what fate he could not even guess. It was immediately following his transfer in mid-air that Bradley made out the shadowy form of a large island far ahead, and not long after he realised that this must be the intended destination of his captors nor was he mistaken. 
three quarters of an hour from the time of his seizure, his captors dropped gently to earth in the strangest city that human eye had ever rested upon. Just a brief glimpse of his immediate surroundings vouchsafed Bradley before he was whisked into the interior of one of the buildings. But in that momentary glance he saw strange piles of stone and wood and mud fashioned into buildings of all conceivable sizes and shapes, some piled high on top of one another, sometimes standing alone in an open courtway, but usually crowded and jammed together, so that there were no streets or alleys between them, other than a few which ended almost as soon as they began. The principal doorways appeared to be in the roofs, and it was through one of these that Bradley was inducted into the dark interior of a low-ceilinged room. Here he was pushed roughly into a corner, where he tripped over a thick mat, and there his captors left him. He heard them moving about in the darkness for a moment, and several times he saw their large luminous eyes glowing in the dark. Finally these disappeared, and silence reigned, broken only by the breathing of the creature, which indicated to the Englishman that they were sleeping somewhere in the same apartment. It was now evident that the mat upon the floor was intended for sleeping purposes, and that the rough shove that had sent him to it had been a rude invitation to repose. After taking stock of himself, and finding that he still had his pistol and ammunition, some matches, a little tobacco, a canteen full of water and a razor, Bradley made himself comfortable upon the mat and was soon asleep, knowing that an attempted escape in the darkness without knowledge of his surroundings would be predoomed to failure. When he awoke it was broad daylight, and the sight that met his eyes made him rub them again and again to assure himself that they were really open and that he was not dreaming. A broad shaft of morning light poured through the open doorway in the ceiling of the room, which was about thirty feet square, or roughly square, being irregular in shape, one side curving outward, another being intended by what might have been the corner of another building jutting into it, another alcoved by three sides of an octagon, while the fourth was serpentine in contour. Two windows let in more daylight, while two doors evidently gave ingress to other rooms. The walls were partially sealed, with thin strips of wood, nicely fitted and finished, partially plastered, and the rest covered with a fine woven cloth. Figures of reptiles and beasts were painted without regard to any uniform scheme here and there upon the walls. A striking feature of the decorations consisted of several engaged columns set into the walls at no regular intervals, the capitals of each supporting a human skull, the cranium of which touched the ceiling, as though the latter were supported by these grim reminders either of departed relatives or of some hideous tribal rite. Bradley could not but wonder which. Yet it was none of these things that filled him with greatest wonder, 
No, it was the figures of the two creatures that had captured him and brought him hither. At one end of the room, a stout pole about two inches in diameter ran horizontally from wall to wall, some six or seven feet from the floor, its ends securely set in two of the columns. Hanging by their knees from this perch, their heads downward and their bodies wrapped in their huge wings, slept the creatures of the night before, like two great horrid bats they hung asleep. As Bradley gazed upon them in wide-eyed astonishment, he saw plainly that all his intelligence, all his acquired knowledge through years of observation and experience, were set at naught by the simple evidence of the fact that stood out glaringly before his eyes. The creature's wings were not mechanical devices, but as natural appendages, growing from their shoulder-blades, as were their arms and legs. He saw, too, that except for their wings, the pair bore a strong resemblance to human beings, though fashioned in a most grotesque mould. As he sat gazing at them, one of the two awoke, separated his wings to release his arms that had been folded across his breast, placed his hands upon the floor, dropped his feet, and stood erect. For a moment he stretched his great wings slowly, solemnly blinking his large round eyes. Then his gaze fell upon Bradley. The thin lips drew back tightly against yellow teeth in a grimace that was nothing but hideous. It could not have been termed a smile, and what emotion it registered the Englishman was at a loss to guess. No expression whatever altered the steady gaze of those large round eyes. There was no colour upon the pasty sunken cheeks. A death's head grimaced as though a man long dead raised his parchment-covered skull from an old grave. The creature stood about the height of an average man, but appeared much taller from the fact that the joints of his long wings rose fully a foot above his hairless head. Bare arms were long and sinewy, ending in strong, bony hands with claw-like fingers, almost talon-like in their suggestiveness. The white robe was separated in front, revealing skinny legs and the further fact that the thing wore but the single garment, which was of fine woven cloth. From crown to sole, the portions of the body exposed were entirely hairless, and as he noted this, Bradley also noted for the first time the cause of much of the seeming expressionlessness of the creature's countenance. It had neither eyebrows or lashes. The ears were small and rested flat against the skull, which was noticeably round, though the face was quite flat. The creature had small feet, beautifully arched and plump, but so out of keeping with every other physical attribute it possessed as to appear ridiculous. After eyeing Bradley for a moment, the thing approached him. "'Where from?' it asked. "'England,' replied Bradley as briefly. "'Where is England, and what?' 
pursued the questioner. "'It is a country far from here,' answered the Englishman. "'Are your people Cos Vajo or Cos "'I do not understand you,' said Bradley. "'And now suppose you answer a few questions. "'Who are you? What country is this? "'Why did you bring me here?' "'Again the sepulchral grimace. "'We are Weroos. "'Luata is our father.' Caspac is ours. This, our country, is called Uo. We brought you here for him who speaks, for Luata to gaze upon and question. He would know from whence you came and why, but principally if you be Kosatalu. And if I am not Kos whatever you call the bloomin' beast, what of it? The Wiru raised his wings in a very human shrug, and waved his bony claws toward the human skulls supporting the ceiling. His gesture was eloquent, but he embellished it by remarking, "'And possibly if you are.' "'I'm hungry,' snapped Bradley. The Wiru motioned him to one of the doors, which he threw open permitting Bradley to pass out on to another roof, on a level lower than that upon which they had landed earlier in the morning. By daylight the city appeared even more remarkable than in the moonlight, though less weird and unreal. The houses of all shapes and sizes were piled about as a child might pile blocks of various forms and colours. He saw now that there were what might be called streets or alleys, but they ran in baffling turns and twists, nor ever reached a destination, always ending in a dead wall where some wiru had built a house across them. Upon each house was a slender column supporting a human skull. Sometimes the columns were at one corner of the roof, sometimes at another or again they rose from the centre or near the centre, and the columns were of varying heights, from that of a man to those which rose twenty feet above their roofs. The skulls were, as a rule, painted blue or white, or in combinations of both colours. The most effective were painted blue, with the teeth white, and the eye sockets rimmed with white. There were other skulls, thousands of them, tens, hundreds of thousands. They rimmed the eaves of every house. They were set in the plaster of the outer walls, and at no great distance from where Bradley stood rose a round tower built entirely of human skulls. And the city extended in every direction as far as the Englishman could see. All about him, Wurus were moving across the roofs or winging through the air. The sad sound of their flapping wings rose and fell like a solemn dirge. Most of them were apparelled all in white, like his captors, but others had markings of red or blue or yellow, slashed across the front of their robes. His guide pointed toward a doorway in an alley below them, Go there and eat, he commanded, and then come back. 
You cannot escape. If any question you, say that you belong to Fosh Balsosh. There is the way. And this time he pointed to the top of a ladder, which protruded above the eaves of the roof nearby. Then he turned and re-entered the house. Bradley looked about him. No, he could not escape. That seemed evident. The city appeared interminable, and beyond the city, if not a savage wilderness filled with wild beasts, there was the broad inland sea infested with horrid monsters. No wonder his captor felt safe in turning him loose in Uo. He wondered if that was the name of the country or the city, and if there were other cities like this upon the island. Slowly he descended the ladder to the seemingly deserted alley, which was paved with what appeared to be large round cobblestones. He looked again at the smooth, worn pavement, and a rueful grin crossed his features. The alley was paved with skulls. The city of human skulls, mused Bradley. They must have been collecting them since Adam, he thought, and then he crossed and entered the building through the doorway that had been pointed out to him. Inside he found a large room in which were many wieroos seated before pedestals, the tops of which were hollowed out so that they resembled the ordinary bird-drinking and bathing fonts, so commonly seen on suburban lawns. A seat protruded from each of the four sides of the pedestals, just a flat board with a support running from its outer end diagonally to the base of the pedestal. As Bradley entered, some of the wieroos espied him, and a dismal wail arose. Whether it was a greeting or a threat, Bradley did not know. Suddenly, from a dark alcove, another wieroo rushed out toward him. "'Who are you?' he cried. "'What do you want?' "'Fosh sent me here to eat,' replied Bradley. "'Do you belong to Fosh asked the other. "'That appears to be what he thinks,' answered the Englishman. "'Are you Kosatalu?' demanded the wieroo. "'Give me something to eat.' "'or I'll be all of that,' replied Bradley. "'The wieroo looked puzzled. "'Sit here, Jalou,' he snapped, "'and Bradley sat down, unconscious of the fact "'that he had been insulted by being called a hyena man, "'an appellation of contempt in Caspac. "'The wieroo had seated him at a pedestal by himself, "'and as he sat waiting for what was next to transpire,' He looked about him at the wieroo in his immediate vicinity. He saw that in each font was a quantity of food, and that each wieroo was armed with a wooden skewer, sharpened at one end, with which they carried solid portions of food to their mouths. At the other end of the skewer was fastened a small clamshell. This was used to scoop up the smaller and softer portions of the repast into which all four of the occupants of each table dipped impartially. The wieroo leaned far over their food, scooping it up rapidly and with much noise, and so great was their haste that a part of each mouthful always fell back into the common dish. And when they choked, 
by reason of the rapidity with which they attempted to bolt their food, they often lost it all. Bradley was glad that he had a pedestal all to himself. Soon the keeper of the place returned with a wooden bowl filled with food. This he dumped into Bradley's trough, as he already thought of it. The Englishman was glad that he could not see into the dark alcove, or know what were all the ingredients that constituted the mess before him, for he was very hungry. After the first mouthful, he cared even less to investigate the antecedents of the dish, for he found it peculiarly palatable. It seemed to consist of a combination of meat, fruits, vegetables, small fish, and other undistinguishable articles of food, all seasoned to produce a gastronomic effect that was at once baffling and delicious. When he had finished, his trough was empty, and then he commenced to wonder who was to settle for his meal. As he waited for the proprietor to return, he fell to examining the dish from which he had eaten, and the pedestal upon which it rested. The font was of stone worn smooth by long-continued use. The four outer edges, hollowed and polished by the contact of the countless weary bodies that had leaned against them for how long a period of time, Bradley could not even guess. Everything about the place carried the impression of hoary age. The carved pedestals were black with use. The wooden seats were worn hollow. The floor of stone slabs was polished by the contact of possibly millions of naked feet and worn away in the aisles between the pedestals, so that the latter rested upon little mounds of stone several inches above the general level of the floor. Finally, seeing that no one came to collect, Bradley arose and started for the doorway. He had covered half the distance when he heard the voice of mine host calling to him. "'Come back, Jaloux!' screamed the Wiru, and Bradley did as he was bid. As he approached the creature, which stood now behind a large, flat-topped pedestal beside the alcove, he saw, lying upon the smooth surface, something that almost elicited a gasp of astonishment from him. A simple, common thing it was— or would have been almost anywhere in the world but Caspac, a square bit of paper. And on it, in a fine hand, written compactly, were many strange hieroglyphics. These remarkable creatures, then, had a written as well as a spoken language, and besides the art of weaving cloth, possessed that of paper-making. Could it be that such grotesque beings represented the high culture of the human race within the boundaries of Caspac? Had natural selection produced during the countless ages of Caspacian life a winged monstrosity that represented the earthly pinnacle of man's evolution? Bradley had noted something of the obvious indications of a gradual evolution from ape to spearman, as exemplified by the several overlapping races of Alilus, clubmen and hatchetmen, that formed the connecting links between the two extremes with which he had come in contact. He had heard of the Crolis and the Galus, 
reputed to be still higher in the plane of evolution, and now he had indisputable evidence of a race possessing refinements of civilization eons in advance of the spearmen. The conjectures awakened by even a momentary consideration of the possibilities involved became at once as wildly bizarre as the insane imagings of a drug addict. As these thoughts flashed through his mind, the weiru held out a pen of bone fixed to a wooden holder, and at the same time made a sign that Bradley was to write upon the paper. It was difficult to judge from the expressionless features of the weiru what was passing in the creature's mind, but Bradley could not but feel that the thing cast a supercilious glance upon him as much as to say, of course you do not know how to write, you poor low creature, but you can make your mark. Bradley seized the pen, and in a clear, bold hand, wrote, John Bradley, England. The Wiru showed evidences of consternation as it seized the piece of paper and examined the writing with every mark of incredulity and surprise. Of course it could make nothing of the strange characters, but it evidently accepted them as proof that Bradley possessed knowledge of a written language of his own, for following the Englishman's entry, it made a few characters of its own. You will come here again, just before Lua hides his face, behind the great cliff, announced the creature, unless before that you are summoned by him who speaks for Luata, in which case you will not have to eat any more. Reassuring cuss, thought Bradley, as he turned and left the building. Outside were several wirus that had been eating at the pedestals within. They immediately surrounded him, asking all sorts of questions, plucking at his garments, his ammunition belt, and his pistol. Their demeanour was entirely different from what it had been within the eating place, and Bradley was to learn that a house of food was sanctuary for him, since the stern laws of the Wirus forbade altercations within such walls. Now they were rough and threatening, as with wings half-spread they hovered about him in menacing attitudes, barring his way to the ladder leading to the roof from whence he had descended. But the Englishman was not one to brook interference for long. He attempted at first to push his way past them, and then, when one seized his arm and jerked him roughly back, Bradley swung upon the creature, and with a heavy blow to the jaw, felled it. Instantly pandemonium reigned. Loud wails arose, great wings opened and closed with a loud beating noise, and many claw-like hands reached forth to clutch him. Bradley struck to right and left. He dared not use his pistol, for fear that once they discovered its power, he would be overcome by weight of numbers and relieved of possession of what he considered his trump card, to be reserved until the last moment that it might be used to aid in his escape. For already the Englishman was planning, though almost hopelessly, such an attempt. 
A few blows convinced Bradley that the Wirus were errant cowards, and that they bore no weapons, for after two or three had fallen beneath his fists, the others formed a circle about him, but at a safe distance, and contented themselves with threatening and blustering, while those whom he had felled lay upon the pavement without trying to arise, the while they moaned and wailed in lugubrious chorus. Again Bradley strode toward the ladder, and this time the circle parted before him, but no sooner had he ascended a few rungs than he was seized by one foot and an effort made to drag him down. With a quick backward glance, the Englishman, clinging firmly to the ladder with both hands, drew up his free foot and with all the strength of a powerful leg planted a heavy shoe squarely in the flat face of the wiru that held him. Shrieking horribly, the creature clapped both hands to its face and sank to the ground, while Bradley clambered quickly the remaining distance to the roof, though no sooner did he reach the top of the ladder than a great flapping of wings beneath him warned him that the wirus were rising after him. A moment later they swarmed about his head as he ran for the apartment in which he had spent the early hours of the morning after his arrival. It was but a short distance from the top of the ladder to the doorway, and Bradley had almost reached his goal when the door flew open and Foshbalsoj stepped out. Immediately the pursuing Wirus demanded punishment of the Jalu, who had so grievously maltreated them. Foshbalsoj listened to their complaints, and then with a sudden sweep of his right hand, seized Bradley by the scruff of the neck, and hurled him sprawling through the doorway upon the floor of the chamber. So sudden was the assault, and so surprising the strength of the Wiru, that the Englishman was taken completely off his guard. When he arose, the door was closed, and Foshbalsosh was standing over him, his hideous face contorted, into an expression of rage and hatred. Hyena snake lizard, he screamed. You would dare lay your low, vile, profaning hands upon even the lowliest of the Wirus, the sacred chosen of Luata? Bradley was mad, and so he spoke in a very low, calm voice, while a half-smile played across his lips, but his cold, grey eyes were unsmiling. What you did to me just now, he said, I am going to kill you for that. And even as he spoke, he launched himself at the throat of Foch Balsoj. The other Wiru, that had been asleep when Bradley left the chamber, had departed, and the two were alone. Foch Balsoj displayed little of the cowardice of those that had attacked Bradley in the alleyway but that may have been because he had so slight opportunity, for Bradley had him by the throat before he could utter a cry, and, with his right hand, struck him heavily and repeatedly upon his face and over his heart. Ugly, smashing, short-arm jabs of the sort that take the fight out of a man in quick time. He clawed and struck at Bradley, while with his great wings he attempted to shield himself from the merciless rain of blows, at the same time searching for a hold upon his antagonist's throat. Presently he succeeded in tripping the Englishman, 
and together the two fell heavily to the floor. Bradley underneath, and at the same instant the weary fastened his long talons about the other's windpipe. Foshbausoj was possessed of enormous strength, and he was fighting for his life. The Englishman soon realized that the battle was going against him. Already his lungs were pounding painfully for air as he reached his pistol. It was with difficulty that he drew it from its holster, and even then, with death staring him in the face, he thought of his precious ammunition. Can't waste it, he thought, and slipping his fingers to the barrel, he raised the weapon and struck Foshbausoj a terrific blow between the eyes. Instantly the claw-like fingers released their hold, and the creature sank limply to the floor beside Bradley, who lay for several minutes, gasping painfully, in an effort to regain his breath. When he was able, he rose and leaned close over the Wiru, lying silent and motionless, his wings dropping limply, and his great round eyes staring blankly toward the ceiling. A brief examination convinced Bradley that the thing was dead, and with the conviction came an overwhelming sense of the dangers which must now confront him. But how was he to escape? His first thought was to find some means of concealing the evidence of his deed, and then to make a bold effort to escape. Stepping to the second door, he pushed it gently open and peered in upon what seemed to be a storeroom. In it was a litter of cloth, such as the Wiru's robes were fashioned from, a number of chests painted blue and white, with white hieroglyphics painted in bold strokes upon the blue, and blue hieroglyphics upon the white. In one corner was a pile of human skulls, reaching almost to the ceiling, and in another a stack of dried Wiru wigs. The chamber was as irregularly shaped as the other, and had but a single window, and a second door at the further end, but was without the exit through the roof, and most important of all, there was no creature of any sort in it. As quickly as possible, Bradley dragged the dead Wiru through the doorway and closed the door. Then he looked about for a place to conceal the corpse. One of the chests was large enough to hold the body if the knees were bent well up, and with this idea in view, Bradley approached the chest to open it. The lid was made in two pieces, each being hinged at an opposite end of the chest, and joining nicely where they met in the centre of the chest, making a snug, well-fitting joint. There was no lock. Bradley raised one half of the cover and looked in. With a smothered, by Jove! He bent closer to examine the contents. The chest was about half filled with an assortment of golden trinkets. There were what appeared to be bracelets, anklets, and brooches of virgin gold. Realising that there was no room in the chest for the body of the Wiru, Bradley turned to seek another means of concealing the evidence of his crime. There was a space between the chests and the wall, and into this he forced the corpse piling the discarded ropes upon it until it was entirely hidden from sight. But now, 
How was he to make good his escape in the bright glare of that early spring day? He walked to the door at the far end of the apartment and cautiously opened it an inch. Before him, and about two feet away, was the blank wall of another building. Bradley opened the door a little farther and looked in both directions. There was no one in sight to the left, over a considerable expanse of rooftop, and to the right, another building shut off his line of vision at about twenty feet. Slipping out, he turned to the right, and in a few steps found a narrow passageway between two buildings. Turning into this, he passed about half its length, when he saw a wieroo appear at the opposite end and halt. The creature was not looking down the passageway, but at any moment it might turn its eyes toward him, when he would be immediately discovered. To Bradley's left was a triangular niche in the wall of one of the houses, and into this he lodged, thus concealing himself from the sight of the wieroo. Beside him was a door painted a vivid yellow, and constructed after the same fashion as the other wieroo doors he had seen, being made up of countless narrow strips of wood from four to six inches in length, laid on in patches of about the same width, the strips in adjacent patches never running in the same direction. The result bore some resemblance to a crazy patchwork quilt, which was heightened when, as in one of the doors he had seen, Contiguous patches were painted different colours. The strips appeared to have been bound together, and to the underlying framework of the door, with gut or fibre, and also glued, after which a thick coating of paint had been applied. One edge of the door was formed of a straight round pole, about two inches in diameter, that protruded at top and bottom. The projections setting in round holes in both lintel and seal, forming the axis upon which the door swung. An eccentric disc upon the inside face of the door engaged a slot in the frame when it was desired to secure the door against intruders. As Bradley stood flattened against the wall waiting for the wieroo to move on, he heard the creature's wings brushing against the sides of the buildings as it made its way down the narrow passage in his direction. As the yellow door offered the only means of escape without detection, the Englishman decided to risk whatever might lie beyond it. And so, boldly pushing it in, he crossed the threshold and entered a small apartment. As he did so, he heard a muffled ejaculation of surprise and turning his eyes in the direction from whence the sound had come, he beheld a wide-eyed girl standing flattened against the opposite wall, an expression of incredulity upon her face. At a glance, he saw that she was of no race of humans that he had come in contact with since his arrival upon Caprona. There was no trace about her form or features of any relationship to those low orders of men, nor was she apparelled as they, or rather, she did not entirely lack apparel, as did most of them. A soft hide fell from her left shoulder to just below her left hip on one side, and almost to her right knee on the other. 
A loose girdle was about her waist, and golden ornaments, such as he had seen in the blue and white chest, encircled her arms and legs, while a golden fillet with a triangular diadem bound her heavy hair above her brows. Her skin was white, as from long confinement within doors, but it was clear and fine. Her figure, but partially concealed by the soft deerskin, was all curves of symmetry and youthful grace, while her features might easily have been the envy of the most fettered of continental beauties. If the girl was surprised by the sudden appearance of Bradley, the latter was absolutely astounded to discover so wondrous a creature among the hideous inhabitants of the city of human skulls. For a moment the two looked at one another in unconcealed consternation, and then Bradley spoke, using to the best of his poor ability the common tongue of Caspac. "'Who are you?' he asked. "'And from where do you come? "'Do not tell me that you are Wiru.' "'No,' she replied. "'I am no Wiru.' "'And she shuddered slightly as she pronounced the word. "'I am a Galu. "'But who and what are you? "'I am sure that you are no Galu. "'From your garments. "'But you are like the Galus in other respects. "'I know that you are not of this frightful city.' "'for I have been here for almost ten moons, "'and never have I seen a male galoo brought hither before, "'nor are there such as you, and I, "'other than prisoners in the land of Uo, "'and these are all females. "'Are you a prisoner, then?' "'He told her briefly who and what he was, "'though he doubted if she understood, "'and from her he learned that she had been a prisoner there for many months, but for what purpose he did not then learn, as in the midst of their conversation the yellow door swung open and a weiru with a robe slashed with yellow entered. At sight of Bradley the creature became furious. "'Whence came this reptile?' it demanded of the girl. "'How long has it been here with you?' "'It came through the doorway just ahead of you,' Bradley answered for the girl. "'The Wiru looked relieved. "'It is well for the girl that this is so,' it said. "'For now only you will have to die.' "'And stepping to the door, the creature raised its voice "'in one of those uncanny, depressing wails. "'The Englishman looked toward the girl. "'Shall I kill it?' he asked, half drawing his pistol. "'What is best to do?' I do not wish to endanger you. The Wiru backed toward the door. Defiler! it screamed. You dare to threaten one of the sacred chosen of Luata. Do not kill him, cried the girl, for then there could be no hope for you. That you are here, alive, shows that they may not intend to kill you at all. And so there is a chance for you if you do not anger them. But touch him in violence and your bleached skull will top the loftiest pedestal of Uo. "'And what of you?' asked Bradley. "'I am already doomed,' replied the girl. "'I am Kosatalo. "'Kosatalo, Kosatalu. "'What did these phrases mean that they were so oft repeated "'by the denizens of Uo? "'Lu and Lo?' "'Bradley knew 
to mean man and woman. Ata was employed variously to indicate life, eggs, young, reproduction, and kindred subjects. Kos was a negative, but in combination they were meaningless to the European. Do you mean they will kill you? asked Bradley. I but wish that they would, replied the girl. My fate is to be worse than death. In just a few nights more, with the coming of the new moon. Poor she-snake, snapped the Wiru. You are to become sacred above all other she's. He who speaks for Luata has chosen you for himself. Today you go to his temple. The Wiru used a phrase meaning literally high place, where you will receive the sacred commands. The girl shuddered and cast a sorrowful glance toward Bradley. Ah, she sighed, if I could but see my beloved country once again. The man stepped suddenly close to her side before the Wiru could interpose, and in a low voice asked her, if there was no way by which he might encompass her escape. She shook her head sorrowfully. Even if we escaped the city, she replied, there is the big water between the island of Uo and the Galu shore. And what is beyond the city if we could leave it? pursued Bradley. I may only guess from what I have heard since I was brought here. She answered, but by reports and chance remarks, I take it to be a beautiful land, in which there are but few wild beasts, and no men. For only the Wirus live upon this island, and they dwell always in cities, of which there are three, this being the largest. The others are at the far end of the island, which is about three marches from end to end, and at its widest point, about one march. From his own experience, and from what the natives on the mainland had told him, Bradley knew that ten miles was a good day's march in Kaspak, owing to the fact that at most points it was a trackless wilderness, and at all times travellers were beset by hideous beasts and reptiles that greatly impeded rapid progress. The two had spoken rapidly, but were now interrupted by the advent through the opening in the roof of several wirus, who had come in answer to the alarm it of the yellow slashing had uttered. This jaloux, cried the offended one, has threatened me. Take its hatchet from it and make it fast where it can do no harm until he who speaks for Luata has said what shall be done with it. It is one of those strange creatures that Fosh-Balsosh discovered first above the Bandlu country, and followed back toward the beginning. He who speaks for Luata sent Fosh-Balsosh to fetch him, one of the creatures, and here it is. It is hoped that it may be from another world, and hold the secret of the Kosatalus. The Wirus approached boldly to take Bradley's hatchet from him, their leader having indicated the pistol hanging in its holster at the Englishman's hip. But the first one went reeling backward against his fellows from the blow to the chin which Bradley followed up with a rush and the intention to clean up the room in record time. But 
He had reckoned without the opening in the roof. Two were down, and a great wailing and moaning was arising when reinforcements appeared from above. Bradley did not see them, but the girl did, and though she cried out a warning, it came too late for him to avoid a large wiru who dived head foremost for him, striking him between the shoulders and bearing him to the floor. Instantly, a dozen more were piling on top of him. His pistol was wrenched from its holster, and he was securely pinioned down by the weight of numbers. At a word from the wiru of the yellow slashing, who evidently was a person of authority, one left and presently returned with fibre ropes, with which Bradley was tightly bound. "'Now bear him to the blue place of seven skulls,' directed the chief wiru. "'And one take the word of all that has passed to him who speaks for Luata.' Each of the creatures raised a hand, the back against its face, as though in salute. One seized Bradley, and carried him through the yellow doorway to the roof, from whence it rose upon its wide-spread wings, and flapped off across the rooftops of Uo, with its heavy burden clutched in its long talons. Below him, Bradley could see the city stretching away to a distance on every hand. It was not as large as he had imagined, though he judged that it was at least three miles square. The houses were piled in indescribable heaps, sometimes to a height of a hundred feet. The streets and alleys were short and crooked, and there were many areas where buildings had been wedged in so closely that no light could possibly reach the lowest tiers. The entire surface of the ground being packed solidly with them. The colours were varied and startling, the architecture amazing. Many roofs were cup or saucer shaped, with a small hole in the centre of each, as though they had been constructed to catch rainwater and conduct it to a reservoir beneath. But nearly all the others had the large opening in the top that Bradley had seen used by these flying men in lieu of doorways. At all levels were the myriad poles surmounted by grinning skulls. But the two most prominent features of the city were the round tower of human skulls that Bradley had noted earlier in the day, and another and much larger edifice near the centre of the city. As they approached it, Bradley saw that it was a huge building, rising a hundred feet in height from the ground, and that it stood alone in the centre of what might have been called a plaza in some other part of the world. Its various parts, however, were set together with the same strange irregularity that marked the architecture of the city as a whole, and it was capped by an enormous saucer-shaped roof, which projected far beyond the eaves, having the appearance of a colossal Chinese coolie hat inverted. The Wiru bearing Bradley passed over one corner of the open space about the large building, revealing to the Englishman grass and trees and running water beneath. They passed the building, and about five hundred yards beyond, the creature alighted on the roof of a square blue building, surmounted by seven poles, bearing seven skulls. This, then, thought Bradley, is the blue place of seven skulls. 
Over the opening in the roof was a grated covering, and this the Wiru removed. The thing then tied a piece of fibre rope to one of Bradley's ankles, and rolled him over the edge of the opening. All was dark below, and for an instant the Englishman came as near to experiencing real terror as he had ever come in his life before. As he rolled off into the black abyss, he felt the rope tighten about his ankle, and an instant later he was stopped with a sudden jerk to swing pendulum-like head downward. Then the creature lowered away until Bradley's head came in sudden and painful contact with the floor below, after which the Wiru let loose of the rope entirely, and the Englishman's body crashed to the wooden planking. He felt the free end of the rope dropped upon him, and heard the grating being slid into place above him. End of chapter 2